Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 4, Chapter 5 of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book 4. A Turning. Chapter 5. Concerning the Mendicant's Bride. The impressive gloom with which Mrs. Wilfer received her husband on his return from the wedding, not so hard at the door of the cherubic conscience, and likewise so impaired the firmness of the cherubic legs, that the culprit's tottering condition of mind and body might have roused suspicion in less occupied persons than the grimly heroic lady, Miss Lavinia, and that esteemed friend of the family, Mr. George Sampson. But the attention of all three being fully possessed by the main fact of the marriage, they had happily none to bestow on the guilty conspirator, to which fortunate circumstance he owed the escape for which he was in no wise indebted to himself. "'You do not, R.W.,' said Mrs. Wilfer, from her stately corner, "'inquire for your daughter, Bella.' "'To be sure, my dear,' he returned, with the most flagrant assumption of unconsciousness, "'I did omit it. How, or perhaps I should rather say where, is Bella?' "'Not here,' Mrs. Wilfer proclaimed, with folded arms. The cherub faintly muttered something to the abortive effect of, "'Oh, indeed, my dear.' "'Not here?' repeated Mrs. Wilfer, in a stern, sonorous voice. "'In a word, R.W., you have no daughter Bella.' "'No daughter Bella, my dear?' "'No, your daughter Bella,' said Mrs. Wilfer, with a lofty air of never having had the least co-partnership in that young lady, of whom she now made reproachful mention as an article of luxury which her husband had set up entirely on his own account and in direct opposition to her advice. "'Your daughter Bella has bestowed herself upon a mendicant.' "'Good gracious, my dear!' "'Show your father his daughter Bella's letter, Lavinia,' said Mrs. Wilfer, in her monotonous Act of Parliament tone, and waving her hand, "'I think your father will admit it to be documentary proof of what I tell him. I believe your father is acquainted with his daughter Bella's writing, but I do not know. He may tell you he is not. Nothing will surprise me.' "'Posted at Greenwich, and dated this morning,' said the irrepressible, flouncing at her father and handing him the evidence, "'hopes Ma won't be angry, but is happily married to Mr. John Rokesmith, and didn't mention it beforehand to avoid words. And please tell darling you and love to me, and I should like to know what you'd have said if any other unmarried member of the family had done it.' He read the letter, and faintly exclaimed, "'Dear me!' "'You may well say, dear me,' rejoined Mrs. Wilfer, in a deep tone, 
upon which encouragement he said it again, though scarcely with the success he had expected, for the scornful lady then remarked with extreme bitterness, "'You said that before.' "'It's a very surprising, but I suppose, my dear,' hinted the cherub, as he folded the letter, after a disconcerting silence, that we must make the best of it. Would you object to my pointing out, my dear, that Mr. John Rokesmith is not, so far as I am acquainted with him, strictly speaking, a mendicant?' "'Indeed,' returned Mrs. Wilfer, with an awful air of politeness, "'truly so.' I was not aware that Mr. John Rooksmith was a gentleman of landed property, but I am much relieved to hear it. "'I doubt if you have heard it, my dear,' the cherub submitted with hesitation. "'Thank you,' said Mrs. Wilfer. "'I make false statements, it appears. So be it. If my daughter flies in my face, surely my husband may. The one thing is not more unnatural than the other. There seems a fitness in the arrangement.' by all means, assuming with a shiver of resignation a deadly cheerfulness. But here the irrepressible skirmished into the conflict, dragging the reluctant form of Mr. Sampson after her. "'Ma,' interposed the young lady, "'I must say, I think it would be much better if you would keep to the point, and not hold forth about people's flying into people's faces, which is nothing more nor less than impossible nonsense.' "'How?' exclaimed Mrs. Wilfer, knitting her dark brows. "'Just impossible nonsense, Ma,' returned Lavvy, "'and George Sampson knows it is as well as I do.' Mrs. Wilfer, suddenly becoming petrified, fixed her indignant eyes upon the wretched George, who, divided between the support due from him to his love, and the support due from him to his love's mamma, supported nobody, not even himself. "'The true point is,' pursued Lavinia, "'that Bella has behaved in a most unsisterly way to me, "'and might have severely compromised me with George and with George's family "'by making off and getting married in this very low and disreputable manner, "'with some pew-opener or other, I suppose, for a bridesmaid, "'when she ought to have confided in me, and ought to have said, "'If, Lavvy, you consider it due to your engagement with George, "'that you should countenance the occasion by being present, "'then, Lavvy, I beg you to be present, "'keeping my secret from Ma and Pa, as of course I should have done.' "'As of course you would have done, ingrate,' exclaimed Mrs. Wilfer. "'Viper!' "'I say, you, you know, ma'am, upon my honour, you mustn't,' Mr. Sampson remonstrated, shaking his head seriously. "'With the highest respect for, for you, ma'am, upon my life, you mustn't. No, really, you know, when a man with the feelings of a gentleman finds himself engaged to a young lady, and it comes even on the part of a member of the family to—' vipers, you know. I would merely put it to your own good feeling, you know," said Mr. Sampson, in rather lame conclusion. Mrs. Wilfer's baleful stare at the young gentleman, in acknowledgment of his obliging interference, was of such a nature that Miss Lavinia burst into tears, and caught him round the neck for his protection. "'My own unnatural mother!' screamed the young lady. "'Wants to annihilate George!' "'But you shan't be annihilated, George. I'll die first. Mr. Sampson, in the arms of his mistress, 
still struggled to shake his head at Mrs. Wilfer, and to remark, "'With every sentiment of respect for you, you know, ma'am, vipers really doesn't do you credit.' "'You shall not be annihilated, George,' cried Miss Lavinia. "'Ma shall destroy me first, and then she'll be contented. Oh, oh, oh! Have I lured George from his happy home to expose him to this? George, dear, be free. Leave me, ever dearest George, to Ma and to my fate. Give my love to your aunt, George, dear, and implore her not to curse the viper that has crossed your path and blighted your existence. Oh, oh, oh! The young lady, who, hysterically speaking, was only just come of age, and had never gone off yet, here fell into a highly creditable crisis, which, regarded as a first performance, was very successful. Mr. Sampson, bending over the body meanwhile, in a state of distraction, which induced him to address Mrs. Wilfer in the inconsistent expressions, "'Demon, with the highest respect for you, behold your work!' The cherub stood helplessly rubbing his chin, and looking on but on the whole was inclined to welcome this diversion as one in which by reason of the absorbent properties of hysterics the previous question would become absorbed and so indeed it proved for the irrepressible gradually coming to herself and asking with wild emotion george dear are you safe and further george love what has happened where is ma Mr. Sampson, with words of comfort, raised her prostrate form, and handed her to Mrs. Wilfer, as if the young lady were something in the nature of refreshments. Mrs. Wilfer, with dignity, partaking of the refreshments, by kissing her once on the brow, as if accepting an oyster, Miss Lavvy, tottering, returned to the protection of Mr. Sampson, to whom she said, "'George, dear, I'm afraid I've been foolish, but I'm still a little weak and giddy. Don't let go my hand, George.' and whom she afterwards greatly agitated, at intervals, by giving utterance, when least expected, to a sound between a sob and a bottle of soda-water, that seemed to rend the bosom of her frock. Among the most remarkable effects of this crisis may be mentioned its having, when peace was restored, an inexplicable moral influence, of an elevating kind, on Miss Lavinia, Mrs. Wilfer, and Mr. George Sampson, from which R. W. was altogether excluded as an outsider and non-sympathiser. Miss Lavinia assumed a modest air of having distinguished herself, Mrs. Wilfer a serene air of forgiveness and resignation, Mr. Sampson an air of having been improved and chastened. The influence pervaded the spirit in which they returned to the previous question. "'George, dear,' said Lavvy, with a melancholy smile. "'After what has passed, I am sure Ma will tell Pa that he may tell Bella we shall all be glad to see her and her husband.' Mr. Sampson said he was sure of it, too, murmuring how eminently he respected Mrs. Wilfer, and ever must, and ever would. Never more eminently, he added, than after what had passed. "'Far be it from me,' said Mrs. Wilfer, making deep proclamation from her corner, to run counter to the feelings of a child of mine and of a youth—Mr. Sampson hardly seemed to like that word—who is the object of her maiden preference. I may feel—nay, know—that I have been deluded and deceived. I may feel—nay, know—that I have been set aside and passed over. I may feel—nay, know—that 
that after having so far overcome my repugnance towards Mr. and Mrs. Boffin as to receive them under this roof, and to consent to your daughter Bella's, here turning to her husband, residing under theirs, it were well if your daughter Bella, again turning to her husband, had profited in a worldly point of view by a connection so distasteful, so disreputable, I may feel— nay no that in uniting herself to mr rokesmith she has united herself to one who is in spite of shallow sophistry a mendicant and i may feel well assured that your daughter bella again turning to her husband does not exalt her family by becoming a mendicant's bride but i suppress what i feel and say nothing of it Mr. Sampson murmured that this was the sort of thing you might expect from one who had ever in her own family been an example, and never an outrage. And ever more so, Mr. Sampson added with some degree of obscurity, and never more so than in and through what had passed. He must take the liberty of adding that what was true of the mother was true of the youngest daughter, and that he could never forget the touching feelings that the conduct of both had awakened within him. In conclusion, he did hope that there wasn't a man with a beating heart who was capable of something that remained undescribed in consequence of Miss Lavinia's stopping him as he reeled in his speech. "'Therefore, R.W.,' said Mrs. Wilfer, resuming her discourse and turning to her lord again, "'let your daughter Bella come when she will, and she will be received. So,' after a short pause and an air of having taken medicine in it, "'so,' Will her husband? And I beg, Pa, said Lavinia, that you will not tell Bella what I have undergone. It can do no good, and it might cause her to reproach herself. My dearest girl, urged Mr. Sampson, she ought to know it. No, George, said Lavinia, in a tone of resolute self-denial. No, dearest George, let it be buried in oblivion. Mr. Sampson considered that too noble. "'Nothing is too noble, dearest George,' returned Lavinia. "'And, Pa, I hope you will be careful not to refer before Bella, if you can help it, to my engagement to George. It might seem like reminding her of her having cast herself away. And I hope, Pa, that you will think it equally right to avoid mentioning George's rising prospects when Bella is present. It might seem like taunting her with her own poor fortunes.' let me ever remember that i am her younger sister and ever spare her painful contrasts which could not but wound her sharply mr sampson expressed his belief that such was the demeanour of angels miss lavvy replied with solemnity no dearest george i am but too well aware that i am merely human Mrs. Wilfer, for her part, still further improved the occasion by sitting with her eyes fastened on her husband, like two great black notes of interrogation, severely inquiring, Are you looking into your breast? Do you deserve your blessings? Can you lay your hand upon your heart and say that you are worthy of so hysterical a daughter? I do not ask you if you are worthy of such a wife put me out of the question, but are you sufficiently conscious of, and thankful for, the pervading moral grandeur of the family spectacle on which you are gazing? These inquiries proved very harassing to R. W., who, besides being a little disturbed by wine, was in perpetual terror of committing himself by the utterance of stray words that would betray his guilty foreknowledge. However, the scene being over, and— 
all things considered, well over, he sought refuge in a doze, which gave his lady immense offence. "'Can you think of your daughter Bella and sleep?' she disdainfully inquired. To which he mildly answered, "'Yes, I uh, think I can, my dear.' "'Then,' said Mrs. Wilfer, with solemn indignation, "'I would recommend you, if you have a human feeling, to retire to bed.' "'Thank you, my dear,' he replied. "'I think it is the best place for me.' And with these unsympathetic words very gladly withdrew. Within a few weeks afterwards, the mendicant's bride— arm in arm with the mendicant, came to tea in fulfilment of an engagement made through her father. And the way in which the mendicant's bride dashed at the unassailable position so considerately to be held by Miss Lavvy, and scattered the whole of the works in all directions in a moment, was triumphant. "'Dearest Ma!' cried Bella, running into the room with a radiant face. "'How do you do, dearest Ma?' and then embraced her joyously. "'And Lavvy, darling, how do you do? And how's George Sampson? And how is he getting on? And when are you going to be married? And how rich are you going to grow? You must tell me all about it, Lavvy, dear, immediately. John, love, kiss Ma and Lavvy, and then we shall all be at home and comfortable.' Mrs. Wilfer stared, but was helpless. Miss Lavinia stared, but was helpless. Apparently with no compunction, and assuredly with no ceremony, Bella tossed her bonnet away, and sat down to make the tea. "'Dearest Ma and Lavvy, you both take sugar, I know. And Pa, you good little Pa, you don't take milk. John does. I didn't before I was married, but I do now, because John does. John, dear, did you kiss Ma and Lavvy? Oh, you did. Quite correct, John, dear, but I didn't see you do it, so I asked. Cut some bread and butter, John, that's a love. Ma likes it doubled. And now, you must tell me, dearest Ma and Lavvy, upon your words and honours, didn't you for a moment, just a moment, think I was a dreadful little wretch when I wrote to say I'd run away?' Before Mrs. Wilfer could wave her gloves, the mendicant's bride, in her merriest affectionate manner, went on again. "'I think it must have made you rather cross, dear Ma and Lavvy, and I know I deserved that you should be very cross, but you see I had been such a heedless, heartless creature, and had led you so to expect that I should marry for money, and so to make sure that I was incapable of marrying for love, that I thought you couldn't believe me. Because, you see, you didn't know how much of good, good, good I had learned from John.' "'Well, so I was sly about it, and ashamed of what you supposed me to be, and fearful that we couldn't understand one another, and might come to words, which we should all be sorry for afterwards, and so I said to John that if he liked to take me without any fuss he might, and as he did like, I let him, and we married a Credit church in the presence of nobody, except an unknown individual who dropped in.' Here her eyes sparkled more brightly. "'And half a pensioner.' "'And now isn't it nice, dearest Ma and Lavvy, to know that no words have been said which any of us can be sorry for, and that we are all the best of friends at the pleasantest of teas?' Having got up and kissed them again, she slipped back to her chair, after a loop on the road to squeeze her husband round the neck, and again went on. "'And now you will naturally want to know, dearest Ma and Lavvy, how we live, and what we have got to live upon. Well, and so we live on Blackheath.' in the charmingest of doll's houses, delightful furnished, and we have a clever little servant who is decidedly pretty, and we are economical and orderly, and do everything by clockwork, and we have a hundred and fifty pounds a year, and we have all we want and more. And lastly, if you would like to know in confidence, as perhaps you may, what is my opinion of my husband, my opinion is that I almost love him. "'And, if you would like to know in confidence, as perhaps you may,' 
said her husband, smiling as he stood by her side, without her having detected his approach, "'my opinion of my wife—my opinion is—' But Bella started up, and put her hand upon his lips. "'Stop, sir. No, John, dear, seriously. Please, not yet a while. I want to be something so much worthier than the doll in the doll's house.' "'My darling, are you not?' "'Not half, not a quarter so much worthier, as I hope you may some day find me. "'Try me through some reverse, John. Try me through some trial, and tell them after that what you think of me.' "'I will, my life,' said John. "'I promise it.' "'That's my dear John. And you won't speak a word now, will you?' "'And I won't.' said John, with a very expressive look of admiration around him. "'Speak a word now.' She laid her laughing cheek upon his breast to thank him, and said, looking at the rest of them sideways out of her bright eyes, "'I'll go farther, Pa and Ma and Lavvy. John don't suspect it. He has no idea of it. But I quite love him.' Even Mrs. Wilfer relaxed under the influence of her married daughter, and seemed in a majestic manner to imply remotely that if r w had been a more deserving object she too might have condescended to come down from her pedestal for his beguilement miss lavinia on the other hand had strong doubts of the policy of the course of treatment and whether it might not spoil mr sampson if experimented on in the case of that young gentleman r w himself was for his part convinced that he was father of one of the most charming of girls and that rokesmith was the most favoured of men which opinion, if propounded to him, Rokesmith would probably not have contested. The newly married pair left early, so that they might walk at leisure to their starting-place from London for Greenwich. At first they were very cheerful and talked much. But after a while Bella fancied that her husband was turning somewhat thoughtful, so she asked him, "'John, dear, what's the matter?' "'Matter, my love?' "'Won't you tell me?' said Bella, looking up into his face. "'What you are thinking of?' "'There's not much in the thought, my soul. I was thinking whether you wouldn't like me to be rich.' "'You rich, John?' repeated Bella, shrinking a little. "'I mean, really rich. Say, as rich as Mr. Boffin. Would you like that?' "'I should be almost afraid to try, John, dear. Was he much the better for his wealth? Was I much the better for the little part I once had in it?' "'But all people are not the worse for riches, my own.' "'Most people,' Bella musingly suggested, with raised eyebrows. "'Nor even most people, it may be hoped. If you were rich, for instance, you would have a great power of doing good to others.' "'Yes, sir, for instance,' Bella playfully rejoined. "'But should I exercise the power, for instance?' and again sir for instance should i at the same time have a great power of doing harm to myself laughing and pressing her arm he retorted but still again for instance would you exercise that power i don't know said bella thoughtfully shaking her head i hope not i think not but it's so easy to hope not and think not without the riches "'Why don't you say, my darling, instead of that phrase, being poor?' he asked, looking earnestly at her. "'Why don't I say being poor? Because I'm not poor. Dear John, it's not possible that you suppose I think we are poor.' 
I do, my love. Oh, John! Understand me, sweetheart. I know that I am rich beyond all wealth in having you, but I think of you, and think for you. In such a dress as you are wearing now, you first charmed me, and in no dress could you ever look, to my thinking, more graceful or more beautiful. But you have admired many finer dresses this very day, and is it not natural that I wish I could give them to you? It's very nice that you should wish it, John. It brings these tears of grateful pleasure into my eyes, to hear you say so with such tenderness. But I don't want them. Again, he pursued, we are now walking through the muddy streets. I love those pretty feet so dearly, that I feel as if I could not bear the dirt to soil the sole of your shoe. Is it not natural that I wish you could ride in a carriage? It's very nice, said Bella, glancing downward at the feet in question, to know that you admire them so much, John dear, and since you do, I am sorry that these shoes are a full size too large, but I don't want a carriage, believe me. You would like one, if you could have one, Bella? I shouldn't like it for its own sake, half so well as such a wish for it. Dear John, your wishes are as real to me as the wishes in the fairy story, that were all fulfilled as soon as spoken. Wish me everything that you can wish for the woman you dearly love, and I have as good as got it, John. I have better than got it, John." They were not the less happy for such talk, and home was not the less home for coming after it. Bella was fast developing a perfect genius for home. All the loves and graces seemed, her husband thought, to have taken domestic service with her, and to help her to make home engaging. Her married life glided happily on. She was alone all day, for after an early breakfast her husband repaired every morning to the city, and did not return until their late dinner-hour. He was in a china-house, he explained to Bella, which she found quite satisfactory without pursuing the china-house into minuter details than a wholesale vision of tea, rice, odd-smelling silks, carved boxes, and tight-eyed people in more than double-soled shoes, with their pigtails pulling their heads of hair off, painted on transparent porcelain. She always walked with her husband to the railroad, and was always there again to meet him, her old coquettish ways a little sobered down, but not much, and her dress as daintily managed as if she managed nothing else. But John gone to business, and Bella returned home. The dress would be laid aside, trim little wrappers and aprons would be substituted, and Bella, putting back her hair with both hands, as if she were making the most business-like arrangements for going dramatically distracted, would enter on the household affairs of the day. Such weighing and mixing and chopping and grating, such dusting and washing and polishing, such snipping and weeding and troweling, and other small gardening, such making and mending and folding and airing, such diverse arrangements, and above all, such severe study. For Mrs. J. R., who had never been wont to do much at home, as Miss B. W., was under the constant necessity of referring for advice and support to a sage volume entitled The Complete British Family Housewife, which she would sit consulting, with her elbows on the table and her temples on her hands, like some perplexed enchantress poring over the black art. This principally because the Complete British Housewife, however sound a Briton at heart, was by no means an expert Briton at expressing herself with clearness in the British tongue, 
and sometimes might have issued her directions to equal purpose in the Kamskatchin language. In any crisis of this nature, Bella would suddenly exclaim aloud, "'Oh, you ridiculous old thing! What do you mean by that? You must have been drinking!' And having made this marginal note, would try the housewife again, with all her dimples screwed into an expression of profound research. There was likewise a coolness on the part of the British housewife, which Mrs. John Rokesmith found highly exasperating. She would say, "'Take a salamander,' as if a general should command a private to catch a tartar, or she would casually issue the order, "'Throw in a handful,' of something entirely unattainable. In these, the housewife's most glaring moments of unreason, Bella would shut her up and knock her on the table, apostrophizing her with the compliment, "'Oh, you are a stupid old donkey! Where am I to get it, do you think?' Another branch of study claimed the attention of Mrs. John Rokesmith for a regular period every day. This was the mastering of the newspaper, so that she might be close up with John on general topics when John came home. In her desire to be in all things his companion, she would have set herself with equal zeal to master algebra, or Euclid, if he had divided his soul between her and either. Wonderful was the way in which she would store up the city intelligence, and beamingly shed it upon John in the course of the evening, incidentally mentioning the commodities that were looking up in the markets, and how much gold had been taken to the bank, and trying to look wise and serious over it, until she would laugh at herself most charmingly, and would say, kissing him, "'It all comes of my love, John, dear.' For a city man, John certainly did appear to care as little as might be for the looking up or looking down of things, as well as for the gold that got taken to the bank. But he cared, beyond all expression, for his wife, as a most precious and sweet commodity that was always looking up, and that never was worth less than all the gold in the world. And she, being inspired by her affection, and having a quick wit and a fine ready instinct, made amazing progress in her domestic efficiency, though, as an endearing creature, she made no progress at all. This was her husband's verdict, and he justified it by telling her that she had begun her married life as the most endearing creature that could possibly be. "'And you have such a cheerful spirit,' he said fondly. "'You are like a bright light in the house.' "'Am I truly, John?' "'Are you truly? Yes, indeed.' only much more and much better. "'Do you know, John dear,' said Bella, taking him by a button of his coat, "'that I sometimes, at odd moments—don't uh, laugh, John, please—' Nothing should induce John to do it, when she asked him not to do it. "'That I sometimes think, John, I feel a little serious.' "'Are you too much alone, my darling?' "'Oh, dear, no, John.' "'The time is so short that I have not a moment too much in the week.' "'Why, serious, my life, then? When serious?' "'When I laugh, I think,' said Bella, laughing as she laid her head upon his shoulder. "'You wouldn't believe it, sir, that I feel serious now. But I do.' And she laughed again, and something glistened in her eyes. "'Would you like to be rich, pet?' he asked her coaxingly. "'Rich, John, how can you ask such goose's questions?' "'Do you regret anything, my love?' "'Regret anything? No,' Bella confidently answered. But then, suddenly changing, she said, between laughing and listening, "'Oh, yes, I do, though. 
I regret Mrs. Boffin.' "'I, too, regret that separation very much. But perhaps it is only temporary. Perhaps things may so fall out, as that you may sometimes see her again, as that we may sometimes see her again.' Bella might be very anxious on the subject, but she scarcely seemed so at the moment. With an absent air, she was investigating that button on her husband's coat, when Pa came in to spend the evening. Pa had his special chair, and his special corner, reserved from him on all occasions, and, without disparagement of his domestic joys, was far happier there than anywhere. It was always pleasantly droll to see Pa and Bella together, but on this present evening her husband thought her more than usually fantastic with him. "'You are a very good little boy,' said Bella, "'to come unexpectedly, as soon as you could get out of school. "'And how have they used you at school to-day, you dear?' "'Well, my pet,' replied the cherub, smiling and rubbing his hands, as she sat him down in his chair, "'I attend two schools. "'There's the Mincing Lane Establishment, and there's your mother's academy. "'Which might you mean, my dear?' "'Both,' said Bella. "'Both, eh? "'Why, to say the truth, "'both have taken a little out of me to-day, my dear, "'but that was to be expected. "'There's no royal road to learning, "'and what is life but learning?' "'And what do you do with yourself "'when you have got your learning by heart, you silly child?' "'Why, then, my dear,' said the cherub, "'after a little consideration, "'I suppose I die.' "'You are a very bad boy,' retorted Bella, "'to talk about dismal things and be out of spirits.' "'My Bella,' rejoined her father, "'I am not out of spirits. "'I am as gay as a lark,' which his face confirmed. "'Then, if you are sure, and certain it's not you, "'I suppose it must be I,' said Bella. "'So I won't do so any more.' "'John, dear, we must give this little fellow his supper, you know.' "'Of course we must, my darling.' "'He has been grubbing and grubbing at school,' said Bella, looking at her father's hand and lightly slapping it, "'till he's not fit to be seen. Oh, what a grubby little child!' "'Indeed, my dear,' said her father, "'I was going to ask to be allowed to wash my hands, only you find me out so soon.' "'Come here, sir,' cried Bella, taking him by the front of his coat. "'Come here, and be washed directly. You are not to be trusted to do it for yourself. Come here, sir.' The cherub, to his genial amusement, was accordingly conducted to a little washing-room, where Bella soaped his face, and rubbed his face, and soaped his hands, and rubbed his hands, and splashed him, and rinsed him, and toweled him, until he was as red as beetroot, even to his very ears. "'Now you must be brushed and combed, sir,' said Bella, busily. "'Hold the light, John. Shut your eyes, sir, and let me take hold of your chin. Be good directly, and do as you're told.' Her father, being more than willing to obey, she dressed his hair in her most elaborate manner, brushing it out straight, parting it, winding it over her fingers, sticking it up on end, and constantly falling back on John to get a good look at the effect of it who always received her on his disengaged arm, and detained her, while the patient cherub stood waiting to be finished. "'There,' said Bella, when she had at last completed the final touches. 
"'Now you are something like a genteel boy. Put your jacket on, and come and have your supper.' The cherub, investing himself with his coat, was led back to his corner, where, but for having no egotism in his pleasant nature, he would have answered well enough for that radiant though self-sufficient boy, Jack Horner. Bella with her own hands laid a cloth for him, and brought him his supper on a tray. "'Stop a moment,' said she. "'We must keep his little clothes clean.' and tied a napkin under his chin in a very methodical manner. While he took his supper, Bella sat by him, sometimes admonishing him to hold his fork by the handle, like a polite child, and at other times carving for him, or pouring out his drink. Fantastic as it all was, and accustomed as she ever had been to make a plaything of her good father, ever delighted that she should put him to that account, still there was an occasional something on Bella's part that was new. It could not be said that she was less playful, whimsical, or natural, than she always had been. But it seemed, her husband thought, as if there were some rather graver reason than he had supposed for what she had so lately said, and as if throughout all this there were glimpses of an underlying seriousness. It was a circumstance, in support of this view of the case, that when she had lighted her father's pipe, and mixed him his glass of grog, she sat down on a stool between her father and her husband, leaning her arm upon the latter, and was very quiet. So quiet, that when her father rose to take his leave, she looked round with a start, as if she had forgotten his being there. "'You go a little way with Pa, John?' "'Yes, my dear. Do you?' "'I have not written to Lizzie Hexham since I wrote and told her that I really had a lover, a whole one. I have often thought I would like to tell her how right she was, when she pretended to read in the live coals that I would go through fire and water for him. I am in the humour to tell her so to-night, John, and I'll stay at home and do it. You are tired? Not at all tired, John, dear, but in the humour to write to Lizzie. Good night, dear Pa. Good night, you dear, good, gentle Pa. Left to herself, she sat down to write, and wrote Lizzie a long letter. She had but completed it, and read it over, when her husband came back. "'You are just in time, sir,' said Bella. "'I am going to give you your first curtain lecture. It shall be a parlour curtain lecture. You shall take the chair of mine, when I have folded my letter, and I will take the stool, though you ought to take it, I can tell you, sir, if it's the stool of repentance. And you'll soon find yourself taken to task soundly.' Her letter folded sealed and directed, and her pen wiped, and her middle finger wiped, and her desk locked up and put away, and these transactions performed with an air of severe business sedateness, which the complete British housewife might have assumed, and certainly would not have rounded off and broken down in with a musical laugh, as Bella did. She placed her husband in his chair, and placed herself upon her stool. "'Now, sir, to begin at the beginning, what is your name?' A question more decidedly rushing at the secret he was keeping from her could not have astounded him. But he kept his countenance, and his secret, and answered, "'John Rokesmith, my dear.' "'Good boy! Who gave you that name?' With the returning suspicion that something might have betrayed him to her, he answered interrogatively, "'My godfathers and my godmothers, dear love.' "'Pretty good,' said Bella. Not good is good, because you hesitate about it. However, as you know your catechism fairly, so far, I let you off the rest. 
"'Now I am going to examine you out of my own head. "'John, dear, why did you go back this evening "'to the question you once asked me before? "'Would I like to be rich?' "'Again his secret. "'He looked down at her as she looked up at him, "'with her hands folded on his knee, "'and it was as nearly told as ever secret was. "'Having no reply ready, "'he could do no better than embrace her. "'In short, dear John,' said Bella. This is the topic of my lecture. I want nothing on earth, and I want you to believe it. If that's all, the lecture may be considered over, for I do. It's not all, John, dear, Bella hesitated. It's only firstly. There's a dreadful secondly, and a dreadful thirdly to come, as I used to say to myself in sermon time, when I was a very small-sized sinner at church. "'Let them come, my dearest.' "'Are you sure, John, dear? Are you absolutely certain in your innermost heart of hearts?' "'Which is not in my keeping,' he rejoined. "'No, John, but the key is. Are you absolutely certain that down at the bottom of that heart of hearts, which you have given to me as I have given mine to you—' "'There is no remembrance that I was once very mercenary?' "'Why, if there were no remembrance in me of the time you speak of,' he softly asked her, with his lips to hers, "'could I love you quite as well as I do? Could I have in the calendar of my life the brightest of its days? Could I, whenever I look at your dear face or hear your dear voice, see and hear my noble champion? It can never have been that which made you serious, darling.' "'No, John, it wasn't that. "'And still less was it Mrs. Boffin, though I love her. "'Wait a moment, and I'll go on with the lecture. "'Give me a moment, because I like to cry for joy. "'It's so delicious, John, dear, to cry for joy.' "'She did so on his neck, and, still clinging there, "'laughed a little when she said, "'I think I am ready now for thirdly, John.' "'I am ready for thirdly,' said John, "'whatever it is.' "'I believe, John,' pursued Bella, "'that you believe, that I believe—' "'My dear child,' cried her husband gaily, "'what a quantity of believing!' "'Isn't there?' said Bella, with another laugh. "'I never knew such a quantity. "'It's like verbs in an exercise.' "'But I can't get on with less believing. "'I'll try again. "'I believe, dear John, "'that you believe that I believe "'that we have as much money as we require "'and that we want for nothing.' "'It is strictly true, Bella.' "'But if our money should by any means be rendered not so much, "'if we had to stint ourselves a little in purchases "'that we can afford to make now,' "'Would you still have the same confidence in my being quite contented, John?' "'Precisely the same confidence, my soul.' "'Thank you, John, dear, thousands upon thousands of times. "'And I may take it for granted, no doubt,' with a little faltering, "'that you would be quite as contented yourself, John. "'But yes, I know I may, for knowing that I should be so, how surely I may know that you would be so, you who are so much stronger and firmer and more reasonable and more generous than I am. Hush, said her husband, 
I must not hear that. You are all wrong there, though otherwise as right as can be. And now I am brought to a little piece of news, my dearest, that I might have told you earlier in the evening. I have strong reason for confidently believing that we shall never be in the receipt of a smaller income than our present income. She might have shown herself more interested in the intelligence, but she had returned to the investigation of the coat-button that had engaged her attention a few hours before, and scarcely seemed to heed what he said. "'And now we have got to the bottom of it at last,' cried her husband, rallying her. "'And this is the thing that made you serious?' "'No, dear,' said Bella, twisting the button and shaking her head. "'It wasn't this.' "'Why, then?' "'Lord bless this little wife of mine, there's a fourthly!' exclaimed John. "'This worried me a little, and so did secondly,' said Bella, occupied with the button. "'But it was quite another sort of seriousness, a much deeper and quieter sort of seriousness, that I spoke of, John dear.' As he bent his face to hers, she raised hers to meet it, and laid her little right hand on his eyes, and kept it there. "'Do you remember, John, on the day we were married, Pa speaking of the ships that might be sailing towards us from the unknown seas?' "'Perfectly, my darling.' "'I think, among them, there is a ship upon the ocean bringing to you and me a little baby, John.' End of Book Four, Chapter Five Book Four, Chapter Six of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning, Chapter Six, A Cry for Help. The paper mill had stopped work for the night, and the paths and roads in its neighbourhood were sprinkled with clusters of people going home from their day's labour in it. There were men, women, and children in the groups, and there was no want of lively colour to flutter in the gentle evening wind. The mingling of various voices and the sound of laughter made a cheerful impression upon the ear, analogous to that of the fluttering colours upon the eye. Into the sheet of water reflecting the flushed sky in the foreground of the living picture, a knot of urchins were casting stones, and watching the expansion of the rippling circles. So in the rosy evening one might watch the ever-widening beauty of the landscape, beyond the newly-released workers wending home, beyond the silver river, beyond the deep green fields of corn so prospering, that the loiterers in their narrow threads of pathway seemed to float immersed breast-high, beyond the hedgerows and the clumps of trees, beyond the windmills on the ridge, away to where the sky appeared to meet the earth as if there were no immensity of space between mankind and heaven. It was a Saturday evening, and at such a time the village dogs, always much more interested in the doings of humanity than in the affairs of their own species, were particularly active. At the general shop, at the butcher's, and at the public-house, they evinced an inquiring spirit never to be satiated. Their especial interest in the public-house would seem to imply some latent rakishness in the canine character for little was eaten there, and they, having no taste for beer or tobacco, 
Mrs. Hubbard's dog is said to have smoked, but proof is wanting, could only have been attracted by sympathy with loose convivial habits. Moreover, a most wretched fiddle played within, a fiddle so unutterably vile, that one lean, long-bodied cur, with a better ear than the rest, found himself under compulsion at intervals to go round the corner and howl. Yet even he returned to the public-house on each occasion with the tenacity of a confirmed drunkard. Fearful to relate, there was even a sort of little fair in the village. Some despairing gingerbread that had been vainly trying to dispose of itself all over the country, and had cast a quantity of dust upon its head in its mortification, again appealed to the public from an infirm booth. So did a heap of nuts, long, long exiled from Barcelona, and yet speaking English so indifferently as to call fourteen of themselves a pint. A peep-show, which had originally started with the Battle of Waterloo, and had since made it every other battle of later date by altering the Duke of Wellington's nose, tempted the student of illustrated history. A fat lady, perhaps in part sustained upon postponed pork, her professional associate being a learned pig, displayed her life-size picture in a low dress, as she appeared when presented at court, several yards round. All this was a vicious spectacle, as any poor idea of amusement on the part of the rougher hewers of wood and drawers of water in this land of England ever is and shall be. They must not vary the rheumatism with amusement. They may vary it with fever and ague, or with as many rheumatic variations as they have joints, but positively not with entertainment after their own manner. The various sounds arising from this scene of depravity, and floating away into the still evening air, made the evening at any point which they just reached fitfully, mellowed by the distance, more still by contrast. Such was the stillness of the evening to Eugene Rayburn, as he walked by the river, with his hands behind him. He walked slowly, and with the measured step and preoccupied air of one who was waiting. He walked between the two points, an osier bed, at this end, and some floating lilies at that, and at each point stopped, and looked expectantly in one direction. "'It is very quiet,' said he. It was very quiet. Some sheep were grazing on the grass by the riverside, and it seemed to him that he had never before heard the crisp tearing sound with which they cropped it. He stopped idly, and looked at them. "'You are stupid enough, I suppose, but if you are clever enough to get through life tolerably to your satisfaction, you have got the better of me, man as I am, and mutton as you are.' A rustle in a field beyond the hedge attracted his attention. "'What's uh, here to do?' he asked himself leisurely, going towards the gate and looking over. "'No jealous paper-miller, no pleasures of the chase in this part of the country, mostly fishing hereabouts.' The field had been newly mown, and there were yet the marks of the scythe on the yellow-green ground, and the track of wheels where the hay had been carried. Following the tracks with his eyes, the view closed with the new hayrick in a corner. Now, if he had gone on to the hayrick, and gone round it, but say that the event was to be as the event fell out, and how idle are such suppositions. Besides, if he had gone, what is there of warning and a bargeman lying on his face? A bird flying to the hedge was all he thought about it, and came back 
and resumed his walk. "'If I had not a reliance on her being truthful,' said Eugene, after taking some half-dozen turns, "'I should begin to think she had given me the slip for the second time. But she promised, and she is a girl of her word.' Turning again at the water-lilies, he saw her coming, and advanced to meet her. "'I was saying to myself, Lizzie, that you were sure to come, though you were late.' "'I had to linger through the village, as if I had no object before me, and I had to speak to several people in passing along, Mr. Rayburn.' "'Are the lads of the village and the ladies such scandal-mongers?' he asked, as he took her hand, and drew it through his arm. She submitted to walk slowly on, with downcast eyes. He put her hand to his lips, and she quietly drew it away. "'Will you walk beside me, Mr. Rayburn, and not touch me?' For his arm was already stealing round her waist. She stopped again, and gave him an earnest, supplicating look. "'Well, Lizzie, well,' said he, in an easy way, though ill at ease with himself, "'Don't be unhappy. Don't be reproachful.' "'I cannot help being unhappy. But I do not mean to be reproachful, Mr. Rayburn. I implore you to go away from this neighbourhood to-morrow morning.' "'Lizzie, Lizzie, Lizzie,' he remonstrated, "'as well be reproachful as wholly unreasonable. I can't go away.' "'Why not?' "'Faith said Eugene, in his airily candid manner, "'because you won't let me. Mind, I don't mean to be reproachful either. I don't complain that you design to keep me here. But you do it. You do it.' "'Will you walk beside me, and not touch me?' For his arm was coming about her again. "'While I speak to you very seriously, Mr. Rayburn.' "'I will do anything within the limits of possibility for you, Lizzie,' he answered with pleasant gaiety as he folded his arms. "'See here. Napoleon Bonaparte at St. Helena.' "'When you spoke to me, as I came from the mill the night before last,' said Lizzie, fixing her eyes upon him with a look of supplication which troubled his better nature, "'you told me that you were much surprised to see me.' and that you were on a solitary fishing excursion. Was it true?' "'It was not,' replied Eugene composedly. "'In the least true. I came here because I had information that I should find you here.' "'Can you imagine why I left London, Mr. Rayburn?' "'I am afraid, Lizzie,' he openly answered, "'that you left London to get rid of me.' "'It is not flattering to my self-love, but I am afraid you did.' "'I did.' "'How could you be so cruel?' "'Oh, Mr. Rayburn,' she answered, suddenly breaking into tears, "'is the cruelty on my side? "'Oh, Mr. Rayburn, Mr. Rayburn, is there no cruelty in your being here to-night?' "'In the name of all that's good—and that is not conjuring you in my own name, for heaven knows I am not good—' said Eugene. "'Don't be distressed.' "'What else can I be, when I know the distance and the difference between us? What else can I be, when to tell me why you came here is to put me to shame?' said Lizzie, covering her face. 
he looked at her with a real sentiment of remorseful tenderness and pity. It was not strong enough to impel him to sacrifice himself and spare her, but it was a strong emotion. "'Lizzie, I never thought before that there was a woman in the world who could affect me so much by saying so little. Don't be hard in your construction of me. You don't know what my state of mind towards you is. You don't know how you haunt me and bewilder me. You don't know how the cursed carelessness that is over-officious in helping me at every other turning of my life won't help me here. You have struck it dead, I think. And I sometimes almost wish you had struck me dead, along with it. She had not been prepared for such passionate expressions, and they awakened some natural sparks of feminine pride and joy in her breast. To consider, wrong as he was, that he could care so much for her, and that she had the power to move him so. "'It grieves you to see me distressed, Mr. Rayburn. It grieves me to see you distressed. I don't reproach you. Indeed, I don't reproach you. You have not felt this as I feel it. Being so different from me, and beginning from another point of view, you have not thought. But I entreat you to think now. Think now.' "'What am I to think of?' asked Eugene bitterly. "'Think of me.' "'Tell me how not to think of you, Lizzie, and you'll change me altogether.' "'I don't mean in that way. Think of me as belonging to another station, and quite cut off from you in honour. Remember that I have no protector near me, unless I have one in your noble heart. Respect my good name.' If you feel towards me, in one particular, as you might if I was a lady, give me the full claims of a lady upon your generous behaviour. I am removed from you and your family by being a working girl. How true a gentleman to be as considerate of me as if I was removed by being a queen! He would have been base indeed to have stood untouched by her appeal. His face expressed contrition and indecision as he asked, have I injured you so much, Lizzie? No, no. You may set me quite right. I don't speak of the past, Mr. Rayburn, but of the present and the future. Are we not here now? Because through two days you have followed me so closely, where there are so many eyes to see you, that I consented to this appointment as an escape. Again, not very flattering to myself, love said Eugene, moodily. But yes, yes, yes. Then I beseech you, Mr. Rayburn, I beg and pray you, leave this neighbourhood. If you do not, consider to what you will drive me. He did consider within himself for a moment or two, and then retorted, Drive you? To what shall I drive you, Lizzie? You will drive me away. I live here, peacefully and respected, and I am well employed here. You will force me to quit this place, as I quitted London, and, by following me again, will force me to quit the next place, in which I may find refuge, as I quitted this. Are you so determined, Lizzie? Forgive the word I am going to use, for its literal truth, to fly from a lover. I am so determined. 
she answered resolutely, though trembling, to fly from such a lover. There was a poor woman died here, but a little while ago, scores of years older than I am, whom I found by chance lying on the wet earth. You may have heard some account of her. I think I have, he answered, if her name was Higdon. Her name was Higdon. Though she was so weak and old, she kept true to one purpose to the very last. Even at the very last, she made me promise that her purpose should be kept to, after she was dead. So settled was her determination. What she did, I can do. Mr. Rayburn, if I believed, but I do not believe, that you could be so cruel to me as to drive me from place to place to wear me out, you should drive me to death, and not do it." He looked full at her handsome face, and in his own handsome face there was a light of blended admiration, anger, and reproach, which she, who loved him so in secret, whose heart had long been so full, and he the cause of its overflowing, drooped before. She tried hard to retain her firmness, but he saw it melting away under his eyes. In the moment of its dissolution, and of his first full knowledge of his influence upon her, she dropped, and he caught her on his arm. "'Lizzie, rest so a moment. Answer what I ask you. If I had not been what you call removed from you, and cut off from you, would you have made this appeal to me to leave you?' "'I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask me, Mr. Rayburn. Let me go back.' "'I swear to you, Lizzie, you shall go directly. I swear to you, you shall go alone. I'll not accompany you. I'll not follow you, if you will reply.' "'How can I, Mr. Rayburn? How can I tell you what I should have done if you had not been what you are?' "'If I had not been what you make me out to be,' he struck in, skilfully changing the form of words, "'would you still have hated me?' "'Oh, Mr. Rayburn,' she replied, appealingly, and weeping, "'you know me better than to think I do.' "'If I had not been what you make me out to be, Lizzie, would you still have been indifferent to me?' "'Oh, Mr. Rayburn,' she answered as before, "'you know me better than that, too.' There was something in the attitude of her whole figure as he supported it, and she hung her head, which besought him to be merciful and not force her to disclose her heart. He was not merciful with her, and he made her do it. "'If I know you better than quite to believe—' unfortunate dog though I am, that you hate me, or even that you are wholly indifferent to me, Lizzie. Let me know so much more from yourself before we separate. Let me know how you would have dealt with me if you had regarded me as being what you would have considered on equal terms with you. It is impossible, Mr. Rayburn. How can I think of you as being on equal terms with me? If my mind could put you on equal terms with me, you could not be yourself. How could I remember, then, the night when I first saw you, and when I went out of the room because you looked at me so attentively? 
or the night that passed at the morning when you broke to me that my father was dead, or the nights when you used to come to see me at my next home, or your having known how uninstructed I was, and having caused me to be taught better, or my having so looked up to you, and wondered at you, and at first thought you so good to be at all mindful of me? Only at first thought me so good, Lizzie. What did you think of me after, at first? So bad? I don't say that. I don't mean that. But after the first wonder and pleasure of being noticed by one so different from any one who had ever spoken to me, I began to feel that it might have been better if I had never seen you. Why? Because you were so different, she answered in a lower voice. Because it was so endless, so hopeless. Spare me. Did you think for me at all, Lizzie? he asked, as if he were a little stung. Not much, Mr. Rayburn. Not much, until to-night. Will you tell me why? I never supposed until to-night that you needed to be thought for. But if you do need to be, if you do truly feel at heart that you have indeed been towards me what you have called yourself to-night, and that there is nothing for us in this life but separation, then heaven help you, and heaven bless you. The purity with which in these words she expressed something of her own love and her own suffering made a deep impression on him for the passing time. He held her almost as if she were sanctified to him by death, and kissed her, once, almost as he might have kissed the dead. I promised that I would not accompany you, nor follow you. Shall I keep you in view? You have been agitated, and it's growing dark. I'm used to be out alone at this hour, and I entreat you not to do so. I promise. I can bring myself to promise nothing more to-night, Lizzie, except that I will try what I can do. There is but one means, Mr. Rayburn, of sparing yourself, and of sparing me, every way. Leave this neighbourhood to-morrow morning. I will try. As he spoke the words in a grave voice, she put her hand in his, removed it, and went away by the riverside. "'Now, could Mortimer believe this?' murmured Eugene, still remaining after a while where she had left him. "'Can I even believe it myself?' He referred to the circumstance that there were tears upon his hand as he stood covering his eyes. A most ridiculous position this to be found out in, was his next thought, and his next struck its root in a little rising resentment against the cause of the tears. Yet I have gained a wonderful power over her, too. Let her be as much in earnest as she will. The reflection brought back the yielding of her face and form, as she had drooped under his gaze. Contemplating the reproduction, he seemed to see, for the second time, in the appeal and in the confession of weakness, a little fear. And she loves me. And so earnest a character must be very earnest in that passion. She cannot choose for herself to be strong in this fancy, wavering in that, and weak in the other. She must go through with her nature, as I must go through with mine. If mine exacts its pains and penalties all round, 
so must hers, I suppose. Pursuing the inquiry into his own nature, he thought, Now if I married her, if outfacing the absurdity of the situation in correspondence with M. R. F., I astonished M. R. F., to the utmost extent of his respected powers, by informing him that I had married her, how would M. R. F. reason with the legal mind? You wouldn't marry for some money and some station, because you were frightfully likely to become bored. Are you less frightfully likely to become bored marrying for no money and no station? Are you sure of yourself? Legal mind, in spite of forensic protestations, must secretly admit good reasoning on the part of M. R. F., not sure of myself. In the very act of calling this tone of levity to his aid, he felt it to be profligate and worthless, and asserted her against it. "'And yet,' said Eugene, "'I should like to see the fellow Mortimer accepted, who would undertake to tell me that this was not a real sentiment on my part, won out of me by her beauty and her worth, in spite of myself, and that I would not be true to her. I should particularly—' like to see the fellow to-night, who would tell me so, or would tell me anything that could be construed to her disadvantage, for I am wearily out of sorts with one Rayburn, who cuts a sorry figure, and I would far rather be out of sorts with somebody else. Eugene, 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 ah, this is a bad business. Ah, so go the Mortimer Lightwood bells, and they sound melancholy to-night. Strolling on, he thought of something else to take himself to task for. "'Where is the analogy, brute beast?' he said impatiently. "'Between a woman whom your father coolly finds out for you, and a woman whom you have found out for yourself, and have ever drifted after with more and more of constancy since you first set eyes upon her?' "'Ass! Can you reason no better than that?' But again he subsided into a reminiscence of his first full knowledge of his power just now, and of her disclosure of her heart. To try no more to go away, and to try her again, was the reckless conclusion it turned uppermost, and yet again. "'Eugene, Eugene, Eugene, this is bad business, and I wish I could stop the lightwood peel, for it sounds like a knell.' Looking above, he found that the young moon was up, and that the stars were beginning to shine in the sky from which the tones of red and yellow were flickering out, in favour of the calm blue of a summer night. He was still by the riverside. Turning suddenly, he met a man so close upon him that Eugene, surprised, stepped back to avoid a collision. The man carried something over his shoulder which might have been a broken oar, or spar, or bar, and took no notice of him, but passed on. "'Hello, friend,' said Eugene, calling after him. "'Are you blind?' The man made no reply, but went his way. Eugene Rayburn went the opposite way, with his hands behind him, and his purpose in his thoughts. He passed the sheep, and passed the gate, and came within hearing of the village sounds, and came to the bridge. The inn where he stayed, like the village and the mill, was not across the river, but on that side of the stream on which he walked. However, knowing the rushy bank and the backwater on the other side to be a retired place, and feeling out of humour for noise or company, he crossed the bridge, and sauntered on, 
looking up at the stars as they seemed one by one to be kindled in the sky, and looking down at the river as the same stars seemed to be kindled deep in the water. A landing-place, overshadowed by a willow, and a pleasure-boat lying moored there among some stakes, caught his eye as he passed along. The spot was in such dark shadow that he paused to make out what was there, and then passed on again. The rippling of the river seemed to cause a correspondent stir in his uneasy reflections. He would have laid them to sleep if he could, but they were in movement, like the stream, and all tending one way with a strong current. As the ripple under the moon broke unexpectedly now and then, and palely flashed in a new shape, and with a new sound, so parts of his thoughts started unbidden from the rest, and revealed their wickedness. "'Out of the question to marry her.' said Eugene, and out of the question to leave her. Ah, the crisis! He had sauntered far enough, before turning to retrace his steps. He stopped upon the margin to look down at the reflected night. In an instant, with a dreadful crash, the reflected night turned crooked. Flames shot jaggedly across the air, and the moon and stars came bursting from the sky. Was he struck by lightning? With some incoherent half-formed thought that effect, he turned under the blows that were blinding him and mashing his life, and closed with a murderer, whom he caught by a red neckerchief, unless the raining down of his own blood gave it that hue. Eugene was light, active, and expert, but his arms were broken, or he was paralysed, and could do no more than hang on to the man, with his head swung back, so that he could see nothing but the heaving sky. After dragging at the assailant, he fell on the bank with him, and then there was another great crash, and then a splash, and all was done. Lizzie Hexam, too, had avoided the noise and the Saturday movement of people in the straggling street, and chose to walk alone by the water until her tears should be dry, and she could so compose herself as to escape remark upon her looking ill or unhappy on going home. The peaceful serenity of the hour and place, having no reproaches or evil intentions within her breast to contend against, sank healingly into its depths. She had meditated and taken comfort. She, too, was turning homeward when she heard a strange sound. It startled her, for it was like a sound of blows. She stood still and listened. It sickened her, for blows fell heavily and cruelly on the quiet of the night. As she listened, undecided, all was silent. As she yet listened, she heard a faint groan, and a fall into the river. Her old, bold life and habit instantly inspired her. Without vain waste of breath in crying for help, where there were none to hear, she ran towards the spot from which the sounds had come. It lay between her and the bridge, but it was more removed from her than she had thought, the night being so very quiet, and sound travelling far with the help of water. At length she reached a part of the green bank, much and newly trodden, where there lay some broken splintered pieces of wood and some torn fragments of clothes. Stooping, she saw that the grass was bloody. Following the drops and smears, she saw that the watery margin of the bank was bloody. Following the current with her eyes, she saw a bloody face, turned up towards the moon, and drifting away. Now, merciful heaven be thanked for that old time, and grant, O blessed Lord, that through thy wonderful workings it may turn to good at last. To whomsoever the drifting face belongs, be it man's or woman's, help my humble hands, Lord God, to raise it from death and restore it to some one to whom it must be dear. It was thought, fervently thought, 
but not for a moment did the prayer check her. She was away before it welled up in her mind, away swift and true, yet steady above all, for without steadiness it could never be done, to the landing-place under the willow-tree, where she also had seen the boat lying moored among the stakes. A sure touch of her old practised hand, a sure step of her old practised foot, a sure light balance of her body, and she was in the boat. A quick glance of her practised eye showed her, even through the deep, dark shadow, the skulls in a rack against the red-brick garden wall. Another moment, and she had cast off, taking the line with her, and the boat had shot out into the moonlight, and she was rowing down the stream as never other woman rowed on English water. Intently over her shoulder, without slackening speed, she looked ahead for the driving face. She passed the scene of the struggle. Yonder it was, on her left, well over the boat's stern. She passed on her right, the end of the village street, a hilly street that almost dipped into the river. Its sounds were growing faint again, and she slackened looking as the boat drove everywhere, everywhere, for the floating face. She merely kept the boat before the stream now, and rested on her oars, knowing well that if the face were not soon visible, it had gone down, and she would overshoot it. An untrained sight would never have seen by the moonlight what she saw at the length of a few strokes astern. She saw the drowning figure rise to the surface, slightly struggle, and as if by instinct turned over on its back to float. Just so had she first dimly seen the face which she now dimly saw again. Firm of look, and firm of purpose, she intently watched its coming on, until it was very near. Then, with a touch, unshipped her skulls, and crept aft in the boat, between kneeling and crouching. Once she let the body evade her, not being sure of her grasp. Twice, and she had seized it by its bloody hair. It was insensible, if not virtually dead. It was mutilated, and streaked the water all about it with dark red streaks. As it could not help itself, it was impossible for her to get it on board. She bent over the stern to secure it with the line, and then the river and its shores rang to the terrible cry she uttered. But, as if possessed by supernatural spirit and strength, she lashed it safe, resumed her seat, and rowed in desperately for the nearest shallow water where she might run the boat aground. Desperately, but not wildly, for she knew that if she lost distinctness of intention, all was lost and gone. She ran the boat ashore, went into the water, released him from the line, and by main strength lifted him in her arms, and laid him in the bottom of the boat. He had fearful wounds upon him, and she bound them up with her dress torn into strips. Else, supposing him to be still alive, she foresaw that he must bleed to death before he could be landed at his inn, which was the nearest place for succour. This done very rapidly, she kissed his disfigured forehead, looked up in anguish to the stars, and blessed him and forgave him, if she had anything to forgive. It was only in that instant that she thought of herself, and then she thought of herself only for him. Now merciful heaven be thanked for that old time, enabling me without a wasted moment to have got the boat afloat again, and to row back against the stream and grant o blessed lord god that through poor me he may be raised from death and preserved to some one else to whom he may be dear one day though never dearer than to me she rode hard rode desperately but never wildly and seldom removed her eyes from him in the bottom of the boat she had so laid him there as that she might see his disfigured face it was so much disfigured that his mother might have covered it but it was above and beyond disfigurement in her eyes the boat touched the edge of the patch of inn lawn, sloping gently to the water, 
There were lights in the windows, but there chanced to be no one out of doors. She made the boat fast, and again by main strength took him up, and never laid him down until she laid him down in the house. Surgeons were sent for, and she sat supporting his head. She had oftentimes heard in days that were gone how doctors would lift the hand of an insensible wounded person, and would drop it if the person were dead. She waited for the awful moment when the doctors might lift his hand, all broken and bruised, and let it fall. The first of the surgeons came, and asked, before proceeding to his examination, "'Who brought him in?' "'I brought him in, sir,' answered Lizzie, at whom all present looked. "'You, my dear, you could not lift far less carry his weight.' "'I think I could not at another time, sir, but I am sure I did.' The surgeon looked at her with great attention, and with some compassion. Having with a grave face touched the wounds upon the head, and the broken arms, he took the hand. Oh! would he let it drop? He appeared irresolute. He did not retain it, but laid it gently down, took a candle, looked more closely at the injuries on the head, and at the pupils of the eyes. That done, he replaced the candle, and took the hand again. Another surgeon then coming in, the two exchanged a whisper, and the second took the hand. Neither did he let it fall at once, but kept it for a while, and laid it gently down. "'Attend to the poor girl,' said the first surgeon then. "'She is quite unconscious. She sees nothing, and hears nothing. All the better for her. Don't rouse her if you can help it. Only move her. Poor girl. Poor girl. She must be amazingly strong of heart. But it is much to be feared that she has set her heart upon the dead. Be gentle with her. End of Book Four, Chapter Six. Book Four, Chapter Seven of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Seven, Better to be Able than Cain. Day was breaking at Plashwater Weir Mill Lock. Stars were yet visible, but there was dull light in the east that was not the light of night. The moon had gone down, and a mist crept along the banks of the river seen through which the trees were the ghosts of trees, and the water was the ghost of water. This earth looked spectral, and so did the pale stars, while the cold eastern glare, expressionless as to heat or colour, with the eye of the firmament quenched, might have been likened to the stare of the dead. Perhaps it was so likened by the lonely bargeman, standing on the brink of the lock. For certain, Bradley Headstone looked that way, when a chill air came up, and when it passed on, murmuring, as if it whispered something that made the phantom trees and water tremble, or threaten, for fancy might have made it either. He turned away, and tried the lock-house door. It was fastened on the inside. "'Is he afraid of me?' he muttered, knocking. Rogue Riderhood was soon roused, and soon undrew the bolt, and let him in. "'Why, Tatherest, I thought you'd been and got lost. Two nights away, I almost believed as you'd give me the slip, 
and I had as good as half a mind for to advertise you in the newspapers to come forward. Bradley's face turned so dark on this hint that Riderhood deemed it expedient to soften it into a compliment. But not you, Governor, not you, he went on, stolidly shaking his head. For what did I say to myself, arter having amused myself with that there stretch of a comic idea as a sort of a playful game? Why, I says to myself, he's a man o' honour. That's why I says to myself, he's a man a double honour. Very remarkably, Riderhood put no question to him. He had looked at him on opening the door, and he now looked at him again, stealthily this time and the result of his looking was that he asked him no question. "'You'll be for another forty on em, Governor, as I judges, afore you turns your mind to breakfast,' said Riderhood, when his visitor had sat down, resting his chin on his hand with his eyes on the ground, and very remarkably again, Riderhood feigned to set the scanty furniture in order, while he spoke, to have a show of reason for not looking at him. "'Yes,' "'I'd better sleep, I think,' said Bradley, without changing his position. "'I, myself, should recommend it, Governor,' assented Riderhood. "'Might you be anyways dry?' "'Yes, I should like a drink,' said Bradley, but without appearing to attend much. Mr. Riderhood got out his bottle, and fetched his jug full of water, and administered a potation. Then he shook the coverlet of his bed and spread it smooth, and Bradley stretched himself upon it in the clothes he wore, Mr. Riderhood poetically remarking that he would pick the bones of his night's rest in his wooden chair, sat in the window as before, but, as before, watched the sleeper narrowly until he was very sound asleep. Then he rose and looked at him close, in the bright daylight, on every side, with great minuteness. He went out to his lock to sum up what he had seen. "'One of his sleeves is tore right away below the elbow, and the t'other's had a good rip at the shoulder. He's been hung on to pretty tight, for his shirt's all tore out of the neck-gatherers. He's been in the grass, and he's been in the water, and he's spotted, and I know with what, and with whose. Hurrah! Bradley slept long. Early in the afternoon a barge came down. Other barges had passed through both ways before it, but the lock-keeper hailed only this particular barge for news, as if he had made a time calculation with some nicety. The men on board told him a piece of news, and there was a lingering on their part to enlarge upon it. Twelve hours had intervened since Bradley's lying down, when he got up. "'Not that I swallow it!' said Riderhood, squinting at his lock, when he saw Bradley coming out of the house. "'As you've been a-sleeping all the time, old boy!' Bradley came to him, sitting on his wooden lever, and asked what o'clock it was. Riderhood told him it was between two and three. "'When are you relieved?' asked Bradley. "'Day or to-morrow, Governor?' "'Not sooner.' "'Not an inch sooner, Governor.' On both sides, importance seemed attached to this question of relief. Riderhood quite petted his reply, saying a second time, and prolonging a negative roll of his head, "'Not an inch sooner, Governor.' "'Did I tell you I was going on to-night?' 
asked Bradley. "'No, Governor,' returned Riderhood, in a cheerful, affable, and conversational manner. "'You did not tell me so, but most like you meant to it, and forgot to it. How otherwise could a doubt have come into your head about it, Governor?' "'As the sun goes down, I intend to go on,' said Bradley. "'So much the more necessary is a peck,' returned Riderhood. "'Come in and have it, Tatherest.' The formality of spreading a tablecloth not being observed in Mr. Riderhood's establishment, the serving of the peck was the affair of a moment, it merely consisting in the handing down of a capacious baking-dish with three-fourths of an immense meat-pie in it, and the production of two pocket-knives, an earthenware mug, and a large brown bottle of beer. Both ate and drank, but Riderhood much the more abundantly. In lieu of plates, that honest man cut two triangular pieces from the thick crust of the pie, and laid them inside uppermost upon the table, the one before himself, and the other before his guest. Upon these platters he placed two goodly portions of the contents of the pie, thus imparting the unusual interest to the entertainment that each partaker scooped out the inside of his plate, and consumed it with his other fare. Besides having the sport of pursuing the clots of congealed gravy over the plane of the table, and successfully taking them into his mouth at last from the blade of his knife, in case of their not first sliding off it. Bradley Headstone was so remarkably awkward at these exercises, that the rogue observed it. "'Look out, Tatherest!' he cried. "'You'll cut your hand!' But the caution came too late, for Bradley gashed it at the instant and, what was more unlucky, in asking Riderhood to tie it up, and in standing close to him for the purpose, he shook his hand under the smart of the wound, and shook blood over Riderhood's dress. When dinner was done, and when what remained of the platters, and what remained of the congealed gravy, had been put back into what remained of the pie, which served as an economical investment for all miscellaneous savings, Riderhood filled the mug with beer, and took a long drink and now he did look at Bradley, and with an evil eye. "'Tatherest,' he said hoarsely, as he bent across the table to touch his arm, "'the news has gone down the river afore you.' "'What news?' "'Who do you think?' said Riderhood, with a hitch of his head, as if he disdainfully jerked the faint away. "'Picked up the body. Guess.' "'I am not good at guessing anything.' "'She did.' Hurrah! You had him there again. She did. The convulsive twitching of Bradley Headstone's face, and the sudden hot humour that broke out upon it, showed how grimly the intelligence touched him. But he said not a single word, good or bad. He only smiled in a lowering manner, and got up and stood leaning at the window, looking through it. Riderhood followed him with his eyes. Riderhood cast down his eyes on his own besprinkled clothes. Riderhood began to have an air of being better at a guess than Bradley owned to being. "'I have been so long in want of rest,' said the schoolmaster, "'that with your leave I'll lie down again.' "'And welcome, Tatherest,' was the hospitable answer of his host. He had laid himself down without waiting for it, and he remained upon the bed until the sun was low. When he arose and came out to resume his journey, he found his host waiting for him on the grass by the towing-path outside the door. "'Whenever it may be necessary that you and I should have any further communication together,' said Bradley, 
I will come back. Good night.' "'Well, since no better can be,' said Riderhood, turning on his heel, "'good night.' But he turned again, as the other set forth, and added under his breath, looking after him with a leer, "'You wouldn't be let to go like that, if my relief warn't as good as come. I'll catch you up in a mile.' In a word, his real time of relief being that evening at sunset, his mate came lounging in within a quarter of an hour, not staying to fill up the utmost margin of his time, but borrowing an hour or so to be repaid again when he should relieve his reliever, Riderhood straight away followed on the track of Bradley Headstone. He was a better follower than Bradley. It had been the calling of his life to slink and skulk and dog and waylay, and he knew his calling well. He effected such a forced march on leaving the lock-house, that he was close up with him, that is to say, as close up with him as he deemed it convenient to be, before another lock was passed. His man looked back pretty often as he went, but got no hint of him. He knew how to take advantage of the ground, and where to put the hedge between them, and where the wall, and when to duck, and when to drop, and had a thousand arts beyond the doomed Bradley's slow conception. But all his arts were brought to a standstill, like himself when Bradley, turning into a green lane or riding by the riverside, a solitary spot run wild in nettles, briars, and brambles, and encumbered with the scathed trunks of a whole hedgerow of felled trees on the outskirts of a little wood, began stepping on these trunks, and dropping down among them, and stepping on them again, apparently as a schoolboy might have done, but assuredly with no schoolboy purpose or want of purpose. "'What are you up to?' muttered Riderhood down in the ditch, and holding the hedge a little open with both hands, and soon his actions made a most extraordinary reply. "'By George and the dragon!' cried Riderhood. "'If he ain't a-going to bathe!' He had passed back, on and among the trunks of trees again, and has passed on to the water-side, and had begun undressing on the grass. For a moment it had a suspicious look of suicide, arranged to counterfeit accident. "'But you wouldn't have fetched a bundle under your arm from among that timber, if such was your game,' said Riderhood. Nevertheless it was a relief to him when the bather, after a plunge and a few strokes, came out. "'For I shouldn't,' he said in a feeling manner, "'have liked to lose you till I'd made more money out of you neither.' Prone in another ditch, he had changed his ditch, as his man had changed his position, and holding apart so small a patch of the hedge that the sharpest eyes could not have detected him, Rogue Riderhood watched the bather dressing. And now gradually came the wonder that he stood up, completely clothed, another man, and not the bargeman. "'Aha!' said Riderhood. "'Much as you was dressed that night, I see.' "'You're a-taking me with you now. "'You're deep, but I knows a deeper.' When the bather had finished dressing, he kneeled on the grass, doing something with his hands, and again stood up with his bundle under his arm. Looking all around him with great attention, he then went to the river's edge and flung it in as far and yet as lightly as he could. 
it was not until he was so decidedly upon his way again as to be beyond a bend of the river, and for the time out of view, that Riderhood scrambled from the ditch. "'Now,' was his debate with himself, "'shall I follow you on, or shall I let you loose for this once, and go a-fishing?' The debate continuing, he followed, as a precautionary measure in any case, and got him again in sight. "'If I was to let you loose this once,' said Riderhood then, still following, "'I could make you come to me again, or I could find you out in one way or another. If I wasn't to go a-fishing, others might. I'll let you loose this once, and go a-fishing.' With that, he suddenly dropped the pursuit, and turned. The miserable man, whom he had released for the time, but not for long, went on towards London. Bradley was suspicious of every sound he heard, and of every face he saw, but was under a spell which very commonly falls upon the shedder of blood, and had no suspicion of the real danger that lurked in his life, and would have it yet. Riderhood was much in his thoughts. He had never been out of his thoughts, since the night adventure of their first meeting. But Riderhood occupied a very different place there, from the place of pursuer, and Bradley had been at the pains of devising so many means of fitting that place to him, and of wedging him into it, that his mind could not compass the possibility of his occupying any other. And this is another spell against which the shedder of blood for ever strives in vain. There are fifty doors by which discovery may enter. With infinite pains and cunning, he double locks and bars forty-nine of them, and cannot see the fiftieth standing wide open. Now, too, was he cursed with a state of mind more wearing and more wearisome than remorse. He had no remorse, but the evildoer who can hold that avenger at bay cannot escape the slower torture of incessantly doing the evil deed again, and doing it more efficiently. In the defence of declarations and pretended confessions of murderers, the pursuing shadow of this torture may be traced through every lie they tell. If I had done it as alleged, is it conceivable that I would have made this and this mistake? If I had done it as alleged, should I have left that unguarded place which that false and wicked witness against me so infamously deposed to? The state of that wretch who continually finds the weak spots in his own crime, and strives to strengthen them when it is unchangeable, is a state that aggravates the offence by doing the deed a thousand times instead of once. But it is a state, too, that tauntingly visits the offence upon a sullen, unrepentant nature with its heaviest punishment every time. Bradley toiled on, chained heavily to the idea of his hatred and his vengeance, and thinking how he might have satiated both in many better ways than the way he had taken. The instrument might have been better, the spot and the hour might have been better chosen. To batter a man down from behind in the dark on the brink of a river was well enough, but he ought to have been instantly disabled, whereas he had turned and seized his assailant, and so to end it before chance-help came, and to be rid of him he had been hurriedly thrown backward into the river before the life was fully beaten out of him. Now, if it could be done again, it must not be so done. Supposing his head had been held down under water for a while, supposing the first blow had been truer, supposing he had been shot, supposing he had been strangled, suppose this way, that way, the other way, 
suppose anything but getting unchained from the one idea, for that was inexorably impossible. The school reopened next day. The scholars saw little or no change in their master's face, for it always wore its slowly labouring expression. But, as he heard his classes, he was always doing the deed, and doing it better. As he paused with his piece of chalk at the blackboard before writing on it, he was thinking of the spot, and whether the water was not deeper, and the fall straighter, a little higher up, or a little lower down. He had half a mind to draw a line or two upon the board, and show himself what he meant. He was doing it again, and improving on the manner, at prayers, in his mental arithmetic, all through his questioning, all through the day. Charlie Hexham was a master now, in another school, under another head. It was evening, and Bradley was walking in his garden, observed from behind a blind, by gentle little Miss Peacher, who contemplated offering him a loan of her smelling-salts for headache, when Mary Ann, in faithful attendance, held up her arm. "'Yes, Mary Ann?' "'Young Mr. Hexham, if you please, ma'am, coming to see Mr. Headstone.' "'Very good, Mary Ann.' Again Mary Ann held up her arm. "'You may speak, Mary Ann.' "'Mr. Headstone has beckoned young Mr. Hexham into his house, ma'am, and he has gone in himself without waiting for young Mr. Hexham to come up, and now he has gone in too, ma'am, and has shut the door.' "'With all my heart, Mary Ann.' Again Mary Ann's telegraphic arm worked. "'What more, Mary Ann?' "'They must find it rather dull and dark, Miss Peacher, for the parlour blinds down, and neither of them pulls it up.' "'There is no accounting,' said good Miss Peacher, with a little sad sigh, which she repressed by laying her hand on her neat methodical bodice. "'There is no accounting for tastes, Mary Ann.' Charlie, entering the dark room, stopped short when he saw his old friend in its yellow shade. "'Come in, Hexham, come in.' Charlie advanced to take the hand that was held out to him, but stopped again short of it. The heavy, bloodshot eyes of the schoolmaster, rising to his face with an effort, met his look of scrutiny. "'Mr. Edstone, what's the matter?' "'Matter? Where?' "'Mr. Edstone, have you heard the news? This news about the fellow, Mr. Eugene Rayburn, that he is killed?' "'He is dead, then,' exclaimed Bradley. Young Hexham, standing looking at him, he moistened his lips with his tongue, looked about the room, glanced at his former pupil, and looked down. "'I heard of the outrage,' said Bradley, trying to constrain his working mouth, "'but I had not heard the end of it.' "'Where were you?' said the boy, advancing a step as he lowered his voice. "'When it was done?' "'Stop! I don't ask that. Don't tell me.' "'If you force your confidence upon me, Mr. Edstone, I'll give up every word of it. Mind, take notice, I'll give up it, and I'll give up you. I will.' The wretched creature seemed to suffer acutely under this renunciation. A desolate air of utter and complete loneliness fell upon him like a visible shade. "'It's for me to speak, not you,' said the boy. "'If you do, you'll do it at your peril.' I'm going to put your selfishness before you, Miss Headstone, your passionate, violent, and ungovernable selfishness, to show you why I can, and why I will have nothing more to do with you." He looked at young Hexham, as if he were waiting for a scholar to go on with a lesson that he knew by heart, and was deadly tired of. But he had said his last word to him. 
if you had any part, I don't say what, in this attack, pursued the boy, or if you know anything about it, I don't say how much, or if you know who did it, I go no closer. You did an injury to me that's never to be forgiven. You know that I took you with me to his chambers in the temple, when I told him my opinion of him, and made myself responsible for my opinion of you. You know that I took you with me when I was watching him with a view to recovering my sister and bringing her to her senses. You know that I have allowed myself to be mixed up with you all through this business in favouring your desire to marry my sister. And how do you know that, pursuing the ends of your own violent temper, you have not laid me open to suspicion? Is that your gratitude to me, Mr. Edstone? Bradley sat looking steadily before him at the vacant air. As often as young Hexham stopped, he turned his eyes towards him, as if he were waiting for him to go on with the lesson and get it done. As often as the boy resumed, Bradley resumed his fixed face. "'I am going to be plain with you, Mr. Headstone,' said young Hexham, shaking his head in a half-threatening manner, "'because this is no time for affecting not to know things that I do know, except certain things at which it might not be very safe for you to hint again.' What I mean is this. If you were a good master, I was a good pupil. I have done you plenty of credit, and in improving my own reputation, I have improved yours quite as much. Very well, then. Starting on equal terms, I want to put before you how you have shown your gratitude to me for doing all I could to further your wishes with reference to my sister. You have compromised me by being seen about with me endeavouring to counteract this Mr. Eugene Rayburn. That's the first thing you have done. If my character, and my now dropping you, help me out of that, Mr. Headstone, the deliverance is to be attributed to me, and not to you. No thanks to you for it. The boy stopping again, he moved his eyes again. I am going on, Mr. Headstone. Don't you be afraid. I am going on to the end and I have told you beforehand what the end is. Now, you know my story. You are as well aware as I am that I have had many disadvantages to leave behind me in life. You have heard me mention my father, and you are sufficiently acquainted with the fact that the home from which I, as I may say, escaped, might have been a more creditable one than it was. My father died, and then it might have been supposed that my way to respectability was pretty clear. No! Well, then my sister begins. He spoke as confidently, and with as entire an absence of any tell-tale colour in his cheek, as if there were no softening old time behind him. Not wonderful, for there was none in his hollow, empty heart. What is there but self, for selfishness to see behind it? When I speak of my sister, I devoutly wish that you had never seen her, Mr. Edstone. However, you did see her, and that's useless now. I confided in you about her. I explained her character to you, and how she interposed some ridiculous fanciful notions in the way of our being as respectable as I tried for. You fell in love with her, and I favoured you with all my might. She could not be induced to favour you, and so we came into collision with this Mr. Eugene Rayburn. Now, what have you done? Why, you have justified my sister in being firmly set against you from first to last, and you have put me in the wrong again. And why have you done it? Because, Mr. Headstone, you are in all your passions so selfish 
and so concentrated upon yourself that you have not yet bestowed one proper thought on me. The cool conviction with which the boy took up and held his position could have been derived from no other vice in human nature. It is, he went on, actually with tears, an extraordinary circumstance attendant on my life. Every effort I make towards perfect respectability is impeded by somebody else through no fault of mine. Not content with doing what I have put before you, you will drag my name into notoriety through dragging my sisters, which you are pretty sure to do, if my suspicions have any foundation at all. And the worse you prove to be, the harder it will be for me to detach myself from being associated with you in people's minds. When he had dried his eyes, and heaved a sob over his injuries, he began moving towards the door. However, I have made up my mind that I will become respectable in the scale of society, and that I will not be dragged down by others. I have done with my sister, as well as with you, since she cares so little for me as to care nothing for undermining my respectability. She shall go her way, and I will go mine. My prospects are very good and I mean to follow them alone. Mr. Headstone, I don't say what you have got upon your conscience, for I don't know. Whatever lies upon it, I hope you will see the justice of keeping wide and clear of me, and will find a consolation in completely exonerating all but yourself. I hope, before many years are out, to succeed the master in my present school, and the mistress being a single woman, though some years older than I am, I might even marry her. If it is any comfort to you to know what plans I may work out by keeping myself strictly respectable in the scale of society, these are the plans at present occurring to me. In conclusion, if you feel a sense of having injured me, and a desire to make some small reparation, I hope you will think how respectable you might have been yourself, and will contemplate your blighted existence. Was it strange? that the wretched man should take this heavily to heart. Perhaps he had taken the boy to heart first, through some long laborious years. Perhaps through the same years he had found his drudgery lightened by communication with a brighter and more apprehensive spirit than his own. Perhaps a family resemblance of face and voice between the boy and his sister smote him hard in the gloom of his fallen state. For whichsoever reason, or for all, he drooped his devoted head when the boy was gone, and shrank together on the floor, and grovelled there, with the palms of his hands tight clasping his hot temples in unutterable misery, and unrelieved by a single tear. Rogue Riderhood had been busy with the river that day. He had fished with assiduity on the previous evening, but the light was short, and he had fished unsuccessfully. He had fished again that day, with better luck and had carried his fish home to Plashwater Weir Mill Lockhouse in a bundle. End of Book Four, Chapter Seven Book Four, Chapter Eight of Our Mutual Friend. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens. Book Four, A Turning. Chapter Eight, A Few Grains of Pepper. 
The doll's dressmaker went no more to the business premises of Pubsey and Co. in St. Mary Axe, after chance had disclosed to her, as she supposed, the flinty and hypocritical character of Mr. Ryer. She often moralised over her work on the tricks and the manners of that venerable cheat, but made her little purchases elsewhere, and lived a secluded life. After much consultation with herself, she decided not to put Lizzie Hexham on her guard against the old man, arguing that the disappointment of finding him out would come upon her quite soon enough. Therefore, in her communication with her friend by letter, she was silent on this theme, and principally dilated on the backslidings of her bad child, who every day grew worse and worse. "'You wicked old boy!' Miss Wren would say to him, with a menacing forefinger. "'You'll force me to run away from you, after all. You will. And then you'll shake the bits, and there'll be nobody to pick up the pieces.' At this foreshadowing of a desolate decease, the wicked old boy would whine and whimper, and would sit shaking himself into the lowest of low spirits, until such time as he could shake himself out of the house, and shake another threepenneth into himself. But dead drunk or dead sober, he had come to such a pass, that he was least alive in the latter state. It was always on the conscience of the paralytic scarecrow, that he had betrayed his sharp parent for sixty threepenneths of rum, which were all gone and that her sharpness would infallibly detect his having done it, sooner or later. All things considered, therefore, and addition made of the state of his body to the state of his mind, the bed on which Mr. Dolls reposed was a bed of roses, from which the flowers and leaves had entirely faded, leaving him to lie upon the thorns and stalks. On a certain day Miss Wren was alone at her work, with the house-door set open for coolness, and was trolling in a small, sweet voice a mournful little song, which might have been the song of the doll she was dressing, bemoaning the brittleness and multability of wax, when whom should she descry, standing on the pavement looking in at her, but Mr. Fledgeby. "'I thought it was you,' said Fledgeby, coming up the two steps. "'Did you?' Miss Wren retorted. "'And I thought it was you, young man. Quite a coincidence.' "'You're not mistaken, and I'm not mistaken. How clever we are!' "'Well, and uh, how are you?' said Fledgeby. "'I'm pretty much as usual, sir,' replied Miss Wren. "'A very unfortunate parent, worried out of my life and senses by a very bad child.' Fledgeby's small eyes opened so wide that they might have passed for ordinary-sized eyes, as he stared about him for the very young person whom he supposed to be in question. "'But you're not a parent.' said Miss Wren, and consequently it's of no use talking to you upon a family subject. To what am I to attribute the honour and favour? To wish to improve your acquaintance, Mr. Fledgeby replied. Miss Wren, stopping to bite her thread, looked at him very knowingly. We never meet now, said Fledgeby, do we? No, said Miss Wren, chopping off the word. So I had a mind pursued Fledgeby, to come and have a talk with you about our dodging friend, the child of Israel. "'So he gave you my address, did he?' asked Miss Wren. "'I got it out of him,' said Fledgeby, with a stammer. "'You seem to see a good deal of him,' remarked Miss Wren, with shrewd distrust. "'A good deal of him, you seem to see, considering?' "'Yes, I do,' said Fledgeby, considering. "'Haven't you?' 
inquired the dressmaker, bending over the doll in which her art was being exercised. "'Done interceding with him yet?' "'No,' said Fledgeby, shaking his head. "'La! Been interceding with him all this time, and sticking to him still,' said Miss Wren, busy with her work. "'Sticking to him is the word,' said Fledgeby. Miss Wren pursued her occupation with a concentrated air, and asked, after an interval of silent industry, "'Are you in the army?' "'Not exactly,' said Fledgeby, rather flattered by the question. "'Navy?' asked Miss Wren. "'No,' said Fledgeby. He qualified these two negatives as if he were not absolutely in either service, but was almost in both. "'What are you, then?' demanded Miss Wren. "'I am a gentleman, I am,' said Fledgeby. "'Oh,' assented Jenny, screwing up her mouth with an appearance of conviction. "'Yes, to be sure. That accounts for your having so much time to give to interceding. But only to think how kind and friendly a gentleman you must be.' Mr. Fledgeby found that he was skating round a board marked dangerous, and had better cut out a fresh track. "'Let's get back to the dodgerest of the dodgers.' said he. "'What's he up to, in the case of your friend the handsome gal? He must have some object. What's his object?' "'Cannot undertake to say, sir, I'm sure,' returned Miss Wren, composedly. "'He won't acknowledge where she's gone,' said Fledgeby. "'And I have a fancy that I should like to have another look at her. Now, I know he knows where she has gone.' "'Cannot undertake to say, sir, I'm sure,' Miss Wren again rejoined. "'And you know where she has gone?' hazarded Fledgeby. "'Cannot undertake to say, sir, really,' replied Miss Wren. The quaint little chin met Mr. Fledgeby's gaze, with such a baffling hitch, that that agreeable gentleman was for some time at a loss how to resume his fascinating part in the dialogue. At length he said, "'Miss Jenny, that's your name, if I don't mistake?' "'Probably you don't mistake, sir.' was Miss Wren's cool answer, because you had it on the best authority. Mine, you know. Miss Jenny, instead of coming up and being dead, let's come out and look alive. It'll pay better, I assure you, said Fledgeby, bestowing an inveigling twinkle or two upon the dressmaker. You'll find it pay better. Perhaps, said Miss Jenny, holding out her doll at arm's length, and critically contemplating the effect of her art with her scissors on her lips and her head thrown back, as if her interest lay there and not in the conversation. "'Perhaps you'll explain your meaning, young man, which is Greek to me. You must have another touch of blue in your trimming, my dear.' Having addressed the last remark to her fair client, Miss Wren proceeded to snip at some blue fragments that lay before her among fragments of all colours, and to thread a needle from a skein of blue silk. "'Look here,' said Fledgeby. "'Are you attending?' "'I am attending, sir,' replied Miss Wren, without the slightest appearance of so doing. "'Another touch of blue in your trimming, my dear.' "'Well, look here,' said Fledgeby, rather discouraged by the circumstances under which he found himself pursuing the conversation. "'If you're attending—' "'Light blue!' "'My sweet young lady,' remarked Miss Wren, in a sprightly tone, "'being best suited to your fair complexion and your flaxen curls.' "'I say, if you're attending,' proceeded Fledgeby, "'it'll pay better in this way. 
it'll lead in a roundabout manner to your buying damage and waste of Pubsey and Co. at a nominal price, or even getting it for nothing.' "'Aha!' thought the dressmaker. "'But you are not so roundabout, little eyes, that I don't notice your answering for Pubsey and Co. after all. Little eyes, little eyes, you're too cunning by half.' "'And I take it for granted,' pursued Fledgeby, "'that to get the most of your materials for nothing would be well worth your while, Miss Jenny.' "'You may take it for granted,' returned the dressmaker, with many knowing nods, "'that it's always well worth my while to make money.' "'Now,' said Fledgeby approvingly, "'you're answering to a sensible purpose. "'Now you're coming out and looking alive.' "'So I make so free, Miss Jenny, as to offer the remark that you and Judah were too thick together to last. You can't come to be intimate with such a deep file as Judah, without beginning to see a little way into him, you know,' said Fledgeby with a wink. "'I must own,' returned the dressmaker, with her eyes upon her work, "'that we are not good friends at present.' "'I know you are not good friends at present.' said Fledgeby. I know all about it. I should like to pay off Judah, by not letting him have his own deep way in everything, and most things he'll get it by hook or by crook, but hang it all, don't let him have his own deep way in everything. That's too much. Mr. Fledgeby said this with some display of indignant warmth, as if he was counsel in the cause for virtue. How can I prevent his having his own way? began the dressmaker. "'Deep way, I call it,' said Fledgeby. "'His own deep way in anything.' "'I'll tell you,' said Fledgeby. "'I like to hear you ask it, because it's looking alive. "'It's what I should expect to find in one of your sagacious understanding. "'Now, candidly.' "'Eh?' cried Miss Jenny. "'I said, now, candidly,' Mr. Fledgeby explained, a little put out. "'Oh!' "'I should be glad to countermine him, respecting the handsome gal, your friend. He means something there. He may depend upon it. Judah means something there. He has a motive, and of course his motive is a dark motive. Now, whatever his motive is, it's necessary to his motive.' Mr. Fledgeby's constructive powers were not equal to the avoidance of some tautology here that it should be kept from me what he has done with her. So I put it to you who know. What has he done with her? I ask no more. And is that asking much, when you understand that it will pay? Miss Jenny Wren, who had cast her eyes upon the bench again, after her last interruption, sat looking at it, needle in hand, but not working, for some moments. She then briskly resumed her work, and said, with a sidelong glance of her eyes and chin at Mr. Fledgeby, "'Where do you live?' "'Albany, Piccadilly,' replied Fledgeby. "'When are you at home?' "'When you like.' "'Breakfast time,' said Jenny, in her abruptest and shortest manner. "'No better time in the day,' said Fledgeby. "'I'll look in upon you to-morrow, young man. Those two ladies—' pointing to dolls, have an appointment in Bond Street at ten precisely. When I've dropped them there, I'll drive round to you." With a weird little laugh, Miss Jenny pointed to her crutch-stick as her equipage. "'This is looking alive indeed,' cried Fledgeby, rising. "'Mark you, I promise you nothing,' 
said the doll's dressmaker, dabbing two dabs at him with a needle, as if she put out both his eyes. "'No, no, I understand,' returned Fledgeby. "'The damage and waste question shall be settled first. It shall be made to pay. Don't you be afraid. Good day, Miss Jenny.' "'Good day, young man.' Mr. Fledgeby's prepossessing form withdrew itself, and the little dressmaker, clipping and snipping and stitching, and stitching and snipping and clipping, fell to work at a great rate, musing and muttering all the time. "'Misty, misty, misty! Can't make it out! Little eyes and the wolf in a conspiracy, or little eyes and the wolf against one another! Can't make it out! My poor Lizzie! Are they both designs against you either way? Can't make it out! His little eyes, Pubsy, and the wolf, Co! Can't make it out! Pubs be true to Co, and Co to Pubsy, Pubsy false to Co, and Co to Pubsy, can't make it out. What said little eyes? Now, candidly. Ah, however the cat jumps, he's a liar. That's all I can make out at present. But you may go to bed in the Albany Piccadilly with that for your pillow, young man. Thereupon the little dressmaker again dabbed out his eyes separately and making a loop in the air of her thread, and deftly catching it into a knot with a needle, seemed to bowstring him into the bargain. For the terrors undergone by Mr. Dolls that evening, when his little parent sat profoundly meditating over her work, and when he imagined himself found out, as often as she changed her attitude, or turned her eyes towards him, there is no adequate name. Moreover, it was her habit to shake her head at that wretched old boy, whenever she caught his eye, as he shivered and shook, what are popularly called the trembles being in full force upon him that evening and likewise what are popularly called the horrors he had a very bad time of it which was not made better by his being so remorseful as frequently to moan sixty-three pennies this imperfect sentence not being at all intelligible as a confession but sounding like a gargantuan order for a dram brought him into new difficulties, by occasioning his parent to pounce at him in a more than usually snappish manner, and to overwhelm him with bitter reproaches. What was a bad time for Mr. Dolls could not fail to be a bad time for the doll's dressmaker. However, she was on the alert next morning, and drove to Bond Street, and set down the two ladies punctually, and then directed her equipage to conduct her to the Albany. Arrived at the doorway of the house, in which Mr. Fledgeby's chambers were, she found a lady standing there in a travelling dress, holding in her hand, of all things in the world, a gentleman's hat. "'You want someone?' said the lady, in a stern manner. "'I am going upstairs to Mr. Fledgeby's.' "'You cannot do that at this moment. There is a gentleman with him. I am waiting for the gentleman.' His business with Mr. Fledgeby will very soon be transacted, and then you can go up. Until the gentleman comes down, you must wait here." While speaking, and afterwards, the lady kept watchfully between her and the staircase, as if prepared to oppose her going up by force. The lady being of a stature to stop her with a hand, and looking mightily determined, the dressmaker stood still. "'Well, why do you listen?' asked the lady. "'I'm not listening,' said the dressmaker. "'What do you hear?' asked the lady, altering her phrase. "'Is it a kind of a spluttering somewhere?' said the dressmaker, with an inquiring look. "'Mr. Fledgeby and his shower-bath, perhaps?' remarked the lady, smiling. 
and somebody is beating a carpet, I think.' "'Mr. Fledgeby's carpet, I dare say,' replied the smiling lady. Miss Wren had a reasonably good eye for smiles, being well accustomed to them on the part of her young friends, though their smiles mostly ran smaller than in nature. But she had never seen so singular a smile as that upon this lady's face. It twitched her nostrils open in a remarkable manner, and contracted her lips and eyebrows. It was a smile of enjoyment, too, though of such a fierce kind, that Miss Wren thought she would rather not enjoy herself, and do it in that way. "'Well,' said the lady, watching her, "'what now?' "'I hope there is nothing the matter,' said the dressmaker. "'Where?' inquired the lady. "'I don't know where.' said Miss Wren, staring about her. "'But I never heard such odd noises. Don't you think I'd better call somebody?' "'I think you had better not,' returned the lady, with a significant frown, and drawing closer. On this hint the dressmaker relinquished the idea, and stood looking at the lady as hard as the lady looked at her. Meanwhile the dressmaker listened with amazement to the odd noises which still continued, and the lady listened too, but with a coolness in which there was no trace of amazement. Soon afterwards came a slamming and banging of doors, and then came running downstairs a gentleman with whiskers and out of breath, who seemed to be red-hot. "'Is your business done, Alfred?' inquired the lady. "'Very thoroughly done,' replied the gentleman, as he took his hat from her. "'You can go up to Mr. Fledgeby as soon as you like,' said the lady, moving haughtily away. "'Oh!' "'And you can take these three pieces of stick with you,' added the gentleman politely, "'and say, if you please, that they come from Mr. Alfred Lammle, with his compliments on leaving England. Mr. Alfred Lammle, be so good as not to forget the name.' The three pieces of stick were three broken and frayed fragments of a stout lithe cane, Miss Jenny taking them wonderingly, and the gentleman repeating with a grin, "'Mr. Alfred Lammle, if you'll be so good. Compliments on leaving England.' The lady and gentleman walked away quite deliberately, and Miss Jenny and her crutch-stick went upstairs. "'Lammle, Lammle, Lammle,' Miss Jenny repeated, as she panted from stair to stair. "'Where have I heard that name? Lammle, Lammle.' "'I know. Said Mary Axe.' With a gleam of new intelligence in her sharp face, the doll's dressmaker pulled at Fledgeby's bell. No one answered, but from within the chambers there proceeded a continuous spluttering sound of a highly singular and unintelligible nature. "'Good gracious! Is little eyes choking?' cried Miss Jenny. Pulling at the bell again, and getting no reply, she pushed the outer door, and found it standing ajar. No one being visible on her opening it wider, and the spluttering continuing, she took the liberty of opening an inner door, and then beheld the extraordinary spectacle of Mr. Fledgeby, in a shirt, a pair of Turkish trousers, and a Turkish cap, rolling over and over on his carpet, and spluttering wonderfully. "'Oh, Lord!' gasped Mr. Fledgeby. "'Oh, my eyes! Stop, thief! I'm strangling fire! Oh, my eye! A glass of water! Give me a glass of water! Shut the door! Murder! Oh, Lord!' And then rolled and spluttered more than ever. 
Hurrying into another room, Miss Jenny got a glass of water, and brought it for Fledgeby's relief, who, gasping, spluttering, and rattling in his throat between whiles, drank some water, and laid his head faintly on her arm. "'Oh, my eye!' cried Fledgeby, struggling anew. "'It's salt and snuff! It's up my nose, and down my throat, and in my windpipe! And here, crowing fearfully, with his eyes starting out of his head, appeared to be contending with every mortal disease incidental to poultry. "'And, oh, my eye! I'm so sore!' cried Fledgeby, starting over on his back in a spasmodic way, that caused the dressmaker to retreat to the wall. "'Oh, I smart so! Do put something on my back and arms and legs and shoulders! Oh, it's down my throat again, and can't come up! Ow! 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 Oh, I smart so! Here Mr. Flensby bounded up, and bounded down, and went rolling over and over again. The doll's dressmaker looked on until he rolled himself into a corner, with his Turkish slippers uppermost, and then, resolving in the first place to address her ministration to the salt and snuff, gave him more water and slapped his back. But the latter application was by no means a success, causing Mr. Fledgeby to scream and to cry out, "'Oh, my eye! Don't slap me! I'm covered with wheels, and I smart so!' However, he gradually ceased to choke and crow, saving at intervals, and Miss Jenny got him into an easy chair, where, with his eyes red and watery, with his features swollen, and with some half-dozen livid bars across his face, he presented a most rueful sight. "'Whatever possessed you to take salt and snuff, young man?' inquired Miss Jenny. Oh, "'I didn't take it,' the dismal youth replied. "'It was crammed into my mouth.' "'Who crammed it?' asked Miss Jenny. "'He did,' answered Fledgeby. "'The assassin, Lammel, he rubbed it into my mouth, and up my nose, and down my throat. Ow! 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 To prevent my crying out, and then cruelly assaulted me. "'With this?' asked Miss Jenny, showing the pieces of cane. "'That's the weapon.' said Fledgeby, eyeing it with the air of an acquaintance. He broke it over me. Oh, smart so! How did you come by it? When he ran downstairs, and joined the lady he had left in the hall with his hat, Miss Jenny began. Oh! groaned Mr. Fledgeby, writhing. She was holding his hat, was she? I might have known she was in it. When he came downstairs and joined the lady, who wouldn't let me come up, he gave me the pieces for you, and I was to say, with Mr. Alfred Lammel's compliments on his leaving England. Miss Jenny said it with such spiteful satisfaction, and such a hitch of her chin and eyes, as might have added to Mr. Fledgeby's miseries, if he could have noticed either in his bodily pain with his hand to his head. Shall I go for the police? inquired Miss Jenny, with a nimble start towards the door. "'Stop! No, don't!' cried Fledgeby. "'Don't, please. We had better keep it quiet. Will you be so good as shut the door? Oh, oh I do smart so!' 
In testimony of the extent to which he smarted, Mr. Fledgeby came wallowing out of the easy chair, and took another roll on the carpet. "'Now, the door's shut,' said Mr. Fledgeby, sitting up in anguish, with his Turkish cap half on and half off, and the bars on his face getting bluer. "'Do me the kindness to look at my back and shoulders. They must be in an awful state, for I hadn't got my dressing-gown on when the brute came rushing in. Can't my shirt away from the collar? There's a pair of scissors on that table. Oh!' groaned Mr. Fledger, with his hand to his head again. "'How I do smart, to be sure!' "'There!' inquired Miss Jenny, alluding to the back and shoulders. "'Oh, Lord, yes!' moaned Fledgeby, rocking himself. "'And all over, everywhere!' The busy little dressmaker quickly snipped the shirt away, and laid bare the results of as furious and sound a thrashing as even Mr. Fledgeby merited. "'You may well smart, young man,' exclaimed Miss Jenny, and stealthily rubbed her little hands behind him, and poked a few exultant pokes with her two forefingers over the crown of his head. Well, "'What do you think of vinegar and brown paper?' inquired the suffering Fredgeby, still rocking and moaning. "'Don't it look as if vinegar and brown paper was the sort of application?' "'Yes,' said Miss Jenny, with a silent chuckle. "'It looks as if it ought to be pickled.' Mr. Fledgeby collapsed under the word pickled, and groaned again. "'My kitchen is on this floor.' he said. You'll find brown paper in a dresser drawer there, and a bottle of vinegar on a shelf. Would you have the kindness to make a few plasters and put them on? It can't be kept too quiet. One, two, um, five, six. You'll want six, said the dressmaker. There's smart enough, whimpered Mr. Fledgeby, groaning and writhing again, for sixty. Miss Jenny repaired to the kitchen, scissors in hand, found the brown paper and found the vinegar, and skilfully cut out and steeped six large plasters. When they were all lying ready on the dresser, an idea occurred to her as she was about to gather them up. "'I think,' said Miss Jenny, with a silent laugh, "'he ought to have a little pepper, just a few grains.' "'I think the young man's tricks and manners make a claim upon his friends, for a little pepper.' Mr. Fledgeby's evil star, showing her the pepper-box on the chimney-piece, she climbed upon a chair and got it down, and sprinkled all the plasters with a judicious hand. She then went back to Mr. Fledgeby, and stuck them all on him, Mr. Fledgeby uttering a sharp howl as each was put in its place. "'There, young man!' said the doll's dressmaker. "'Now I hope you feel pretty comfortable.' Apparently Mr. Fledgeby did not, for he cried by way of answer, "'Oh, how oh, oh, I do smart!' Miss Jenny got his Persian gown upon him, extinguished his eyes crookedly with his Persian cap, and helped him to his bed, upon which he climbed groaning. A "'Business between you and me being out of the question to-day, young man, and my time being precious,' said Miss Jenny then, "'I'll make myself scarce. Are you comfortable now?' "'Oh, my eye!' cried Mr. Fledgeby. "'No, I ain't. Oh, how I do smart!' The last thing Miss Jenny saw, as she looked back before closing the room door, 
was Mr. Fledgeby in the act of plunging and gambling all over his bed, like a porpoise or dolphin in its native element. She then shut the bedroom door, and all the other doors, and going downstairs, and emerging from the Albany into the busy streets, took omnibus for St. Mary Axe, pressing on the road all the gaily dressed ladies whom she could see from the window, and making them unconscious lay-figures for dolls, while she mentally cut them out and basted them. End of Book Four, Chapter Eight Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.